Hello, freaks, and welcome to Radical Research. We have a PayPal account now. We opened this because we had a couple people asking to donate, and I guess these are the kind of people who understand a podcast is a money-losing proposition. There are some hosting costs and other costs involved in keeping the thing running. If anyone out there is feeling generous and wants to give two bucks or 200, we'll humbly accept. Uh, that PayPal ID is radicalresearchpodcast at gmail.com. That's also our email address if you'd like to get in touch about anything you hear on this or any other episode. A month or so ago, I did this thing that some of us fiends do where we'll listen to an album that we don't really even enjoy all that much because it's part of an otherwise great discography of a band we love. And it lends a kind of perspective or a contrast to the rest of the catalog. So this was maybe my fourth or fifth ever listen to Mind Over Four's Empty Hands. And like all other listens to this album, it didn't go well. And I didn't find myself finally opening up to it or having any big revelation. I remember texting you, Hunter. Um, Did you have any expectation that you would open up to it this time? No, but you know how sometimes that'll happen with like a sleeper album? They sometimes flower. Yeah, this one's a permanent sleeper. Yeah, I'm afraid it is. And it was always really disappointing. And it always hit you like a hammer, like, oh, this turn of direction for Mind Over 4 is just not what really anybody wanted. I suppose there are probably Mind Over 4 fans out there who do love it. We're not two of them. Um, We we are not. Actually, Sue Knowles, now Sue Verica, is a huge Mind Over 4 fan. I remember her being equally crestfallen when she heard the album. I think she called me. I, I can't remember. I wasn't yet at Maniacs, but we were in touch and she was just almost crying. Like, what? what is What is with empty hands? Like, why is this this? The, the, um, the title is telling. It is. Well, we'll talk a lot more about this album at the end of the show. We're, we're going to follow in chronological order, which I think only makes the most sense. But um, it's this frustrating lump at the end of their career. And somehow, though, with that listen, I knew Hunter and I had to devote an episode of Radical Research to this fantastic Orange County, L.A. band. Um, yes. And I guess it kind of just shows that sometimes it's not the best albums that bring a band's excellence into focus. It's maybe the worst ones. It's pretty incredible the amount of hype interest and like near big breaks mine over four enjoyed in the late eighties and the early nineties. Many. Uh, do you remember that? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I remember full page ads in rip and I believe in maniacs. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, Pantera at the near height of their success and powers, Phil Anselmo is wearing a mind over four t-shirt, you know, right. vulgar display of power. I mean, no, they were the, at the very cusp of success so many times, but I, I think that we will start to unravel why maybe that success was elusive for them as we dig into this program, but maybe also why they were always on the cusp of it too. Couldn't agree more. You know, but the frustrating thing about them as opposed to say a D Kreutzen or a band like that is my number four are nearly and I hate to say it, but, and I don't want to exaggerate, but they're nearly forgotten. I mean, it's really difficult to find any useful info on the band 
you know, out there on the internet before right. or beyond the very basic sort of biographical stuff. I mean, and it's not that we care a ton for Spotify as our main way of accessing music, but, and it's hardly an indicator of what's good or what's out there. But I was really shocked to go on Spotify and find that not one single mind over four album was available on Spotify. Not, and there's only one super early song called lust. It's on some orange County long beach compilation. It's, it's about as horrible as the caterwauling mess of, desperate expression yes which we'll get into in a bit but i mean it, it's a it's a reasonable litmus test i mean i remember when i first started to subscribe to spotify basically testing its parameters and like plugging in some of the most underground shit that i could think of yeah and always finding a hit um yeah. and then and yeah but mind over four is pretty much just floating around in oblivion and it's going that way with everything about them regarding their history reg- just just regarding just about any any sort of minutiae or, or or detail but you know look if if you if what we do tonight and in this episode strikes and support in you you know we always recommend going on to discogs and getting this stuff if you're interested in owning you know pieces of their discography i mean i would like to say that cultitude means nothing to me so like None of my musings tonight or my praise is driven by how underground this band is. I think it's a travesty. I think they are an incredibly special band. And it's um, it's deeply disappointing to me that they've been um, sort of relegated to the, the dustbin of musical history. For sure. Uh, and I'm really, really hopeful that we can make a case for them tonight and that you will, because Honestly, you have another, no other means by which to listen to them that you will go on to Discogs or eBay or Amazon or whatever your chosen conduit and, and buy these albums um, because I, I think they have so much to, to give. One guy doing his best to keep the flame alive for this band is this uh, Matthew Ruckgaber, Ruckgaber. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He's running a Facebook page with all sorts of interesting posts and we recommend you support and like his page. Uh, we'll put a link in our show notes for easy access to that. There's also rumors of a package release of earlier and rare material. So let's hope that comes to fruition someday. So my number four began life under the direction of vocalist Spike Xavier and guitarist Mike Jensen and a few other guys before they solidified into their classic quartet lineup, uh, which featured drummer Mark Fullerton and bassist Rich Castillo, both monsters and masters of their instrument as you oh, know, all, all four. You all four. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Have you listened to Desperate Expression? This is the first thing they did in 1983 with Spike, Mike, and a few other guys. It's a mess. It's a mess. That's, that's diplomatic. I'm nothing if not diplomatic. <laughs> and, I, and I'm you know, loath to disparage one of my favorite bands, but let's yeah. just be honest here. It's um, interesting. Things had, had yet to coalesce. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, there's a really long song. It's about 11 and a half minutes, and it's called Halfway Down, which ended up being a name of one of their later albums. And it's just this wandering... Yes. unsure i was gonna say of, meandering but yeah wandering hits the nail on the head meandering's good yeah you know, directionless garage-y, yeah garage unfocused annoying it's just mm-hmm. it's it's just like they, they just don't know what they are and that's fine it's they're, they're pretty young and i had always wondered about this recording i'd heard about it for years uh the original vinyl was something that they had um there's a great story behind that we'll actually talk about that later there's a reason we'll talk about that later but the original vinyl is almost impossible to get a hold of and i'm glad i didn't like shell out the 75 dollars or whatever it would be to to buy one because i would have been really disappointed because none of the material is any good i mean this is just my opinion but it's it's just a band trying to clumsily sort out what they're all about yeah just pay the water bill with that money 
Yeah, you know? really green, really yeah. hapless. I guess we've probably thrown enough negative. I mean, yeah, and <laughs> you know, sometimes I mean, you can find a lot of charm in in the embryonic work of a lot of bands. Oh yeah, um, I would I would like to say that I found charm in desperate expressions, but I fa- I mostly found frustration, and it's probably because I came to them, I came to that so much later than well, the goddess was my introduction to the band. Yeah. So you're talking about a really, really fully formed band. So going back to Desperate Expressions after that was um, was difficult work. Yeah, it's one of these, and like you say, you make a really good point about like sometimes a band's embryonic material is really fascinating and sometimes just plain old good. Great. Sure. Um, but this was just like this obvious attempt, almost a too obvious attempt to seem kind of arty. And that's really all it is. That, that's all it right. strikes me as, especially knowing where they went. So where did they go? This was 1983 with Desperate Expression. A couple of tapes were released after this self-released EP, and they finally in 1987 offered a full length on the Triple X label called Out Here. Now, what do you know about Triple X? Because I looked up, uh, you know, I know some about what they put out besides Mind Over 4, and then I found some other things of interest. Really, I don't know a whole lot. I mean, I know that they were sort of a LA scene label. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they put out the first Jane's Addiction album, which right. is- Probably their, their their biggest selling album. Well, and I I think Jane's Addiction might figure into our conversation a bit here. Yeah, that that name will come up a few times. Yeah, I think they. I mean, it was pretty much just L.A. stuff. Not um, really. No, they, no. Acrofet was on it. This kind of like. Are you serious? Rock. Yeah, Texas band Rigor Mortis. I didn't know that either. Uh, the Exploited. Okay. The Adolescents were from California, right? They were. They were LA. Yeah, they were in Orange County, uh, hardcore band. What about Mojo Nixon? <laughs> you have no idea. I, I hate to tell you that I'm not conversant in the works of Mojo Nixon. <laughs> Neither am I, my friend. Uh, I know they, yeah, they did like, um, like Psycom, LAPD, um, stuff like that. Exactly. Yep. Pygmy Love Circus. <laughs> a, a, a band that you and I bandy about constantly. Oh, yeah, right. Only because Tools Danny Carey was in it at one point. Yes. So. Yeah, so they, they, they were straddling the line between like, you know, post-punk, post-hardcore, alternative rock, heavy metal. And that's kind of funny because like Mind Over 4 really did all that. You know, I was kind of thinking about in like exactly what you're saying now. I was thinking about Mind Over 4 and like that. And this has obviously become a thread in this program, but like the hybridization that occurred in the late 80s and, and early 90s. It's like I kept thinking about progressive rock. Mm. and how progressive rock is was not this no one in 1968 1969 said you know what we should play progressive rock nobody's yeah nobody said this, oh i don't form a prog band no exactly it was no. not this like this sui generis out of the blue thing it was like you know rock musicians with maybe classical training but interest in r&b interest in electronic music it was the same thing in the in the late 80s and early 90s like none of these bands were conscious of what they were doing i don't think i think they were rock musicians who were listening to post-punk and listening to goth and fringe metal and such and it, it just resulted in this really interesting potpourri absolutely and i think now if you were you know when and surely this is happening all over the the, the country right now or the world, you know, you got young guys going like, let's, let's form a band based on some of these bands that you're talking about who were this potpourri, but then right. it becomes like, it's really kind of, it's a formula. It's really disingenuine. It's just like, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't have that spark of That's almost unknowing, that sort of in, innocent sincerity to it. 
but yeah, so here's, here's where mind over four is operating. Uh, they were influenced by a ton of different things as we'll kind of note as we go along, but, um, and really running with a lot of different sorts of bands too, which we'll also note later. But so by 1987, Mark Fullerton joins on drums. That's a really key moment. Um, the out here album comes out in triple X it's 12 songs, 31 minutes, this was also a trait of the majority of their output, these really complex songs condensed in this really short space, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, they, we'll get into it a little later. We can, I can say now, because Mike Gitter was solely responsible for my getting into this band. Okay. Um, and I remember when he reviewed uh, Halfway Down, and do you remember um, the magazine that Tower Records used to put out? You mentioned it to me recently. I, I, I have a very faint memory of it, but yeah, um, those anyway, are the days when a fucking record store had its own magazine. Love that. A record store that's yeah no longer around, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. But but anyway, like he described it as music that would not sit still for a moment. That's a that's a fantastic. Well, we might as well just end this podcast right now. I can't. <laughs> no reason to go on. <laughs> but let's get into out here, and then we'll talk a little more about it. I um I want to play. She Beams the Light in all its two plus minutes. This is going to be the third song we've ever played in full on uh, Radical Research for all you train spotters. <laughs> but uh, it, it also, we're going to go right into the next song on the album, which is God. And She Beams the Light and God just kind of segue together. But they, again, besides having sort of these shorter songs, they would constantly kind of segue and not give you a breath. No. This was another trait of Mind Over Four. So let's listen to She Beams the Light, and then we'll uh, segue into God and listen to a little bit of that as well.
couple of selections from their first full-length album. They're still kind of in an early phase here, but they have begun to coalesce. And you hear a lot of the things, a lot of the devices that will, I think, be tropes throughout the Mind Over 4 discography, like a lot of the guitar harmonics. It's like an acidity and a snarkiness to, um, to Spike's vocals here. Um, Let's talk about Spike's vocals because he's going to be a focal point, obviously. And, um, there are parts of this that remind me of No Means No. Um, hmm. j- like in a, a really like acerbic kind of nasty way. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, they're not analogs exactly. But th- there's just a bite to some of Spike's vocals here that reminded me of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I-, I can hear that. You know what's interesting? Uh, his voice with um, She Beams the Light. This might be a kind of out there comparison, but I've always heard it. You mean out here? <laughs> yes, it's an out here comparison. Um, but Spike's voice, sorry, on folks. <laughs> Spike's voice on "She Beams the Light" is um, always reminds me of three years later what Mark Osagueda did in Death Angel. Oh, especially, yeah, totally especially the song "XTC" is almost. Uh, it's it's very very close to She Beams the Light. And well, you know, one of the reasons that I always liked Act Three so much is because it sounded like Mind Over Four to me. It, it really does, and you know what? They ran together. Or at least they played shows together. Yeah. Because if you look at some of the, I, I think on the, maybe not the Out Here Thanks list, but the self titled one, the next album, right. Death Angel are listed, and I, you know, so there was something there, and you know, I, I, I wouldn't doubt there was some mutual influence as well. Now, Mark Fullerton, man, as we can hear on those two snippets, his drumming is so nimble and agile, sophisticated. He's great, always, always fantastic. He really only kind of gets better too. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, like I, the less reverb that Mark Fullerton has on his drums, the better too, which is yeah. why for me, like his performance on Halfway Down is just so critical. Okay. Okay. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but on the goddess, it sounds very, he's it sounds very produced on the goddess, which I, I like his sound there, but I, I get what you're saying. I'm just saying that like, he doesn't need any sort of production adornment to be great. Yeah. Yeah. He's just, a, yeah, he's a, just a real talent. And I, you know, I should probably also take this moment to point out that our great mutual friend, Tim Hammond loves Mike Jensen's guitar playing so much that he named his dog after him. <laughs> right. You know, and you know, when I met, when I met his dog and, and Tim was telling me his name, I thought he was, he named him after Jensen from uh, the haunted. And oh yeah. From seance. seance yeah. 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 That was not it. It was fair, fair enough, which made me love Tim that much I, more. I'm like, I like that guy too. Yeah. Who, who, uh, who names their dog after a guy in mind over four? Like I, I love Tim that much more now. So, <laughs> um, but Spike's lyrics were, well, Spike actually wrote about 40%. Uh, well, half of the lyrics uh, I think Mike wrote half of them. I always assumed it was all Spike, but they were about half and half. But anyway, they were all they were biographical, and they touched on a lot of points in the sort of recent history, uh, and then going back to sort of the Native American plight and all that. I mean, we have songs that would come up uh, on the next album about D Boone of the Minutemen, and there's a song on out here called Martin's Song, which I've always read it as a, a song about Martin Luther King Jr. I'm not sure if I'm right, but like the bullet shave my body reference. And there's this kind of quiet contemplative mood to the tune. There's some breaking glass. There's an EKG monitor. I don't know. Just it's, it's about death of somebody named Martin. And I think just 
knowing spikes proclivities and, and yeah no i mean and yeah and even after mind over four like i mean spikes kind of political activism came to the fore absolutely we'll talk yeah, about you know, that they're, they're, they were very yeah socially conscious and politically minded so no i, I whether it's conjecture or not i i think you're on the right trail we're gonna play a song called pity this is just a great song to me this is a highlight of the album love the song this, yeah. this song has a moment in it that i i'm eager to mention later let's get pitiful counting at the one minute and 20 second mark there it's this total unison uh bass guitar run that you would find on a rush album like say around uh, hemispheres or permanent waves just kind of shows that like not only are these guys enmeshed in you know in post-punk and in alternative rock or whatever but they're they're definitely they're definitely carrying influences from an earlier era and and, and in a really unashamed way which i, I find super compelling I did this interview with Spike in 1993, shortly after I'd seen them live, the one only time I saw them. And um, he told me that the name of the band was basically just for my, they, the, and, and he said the whole idea of the formation of the band, and this is weird because they had five guys at first, so I don't know how this worked out with his math, but, but basically the idea was to get the four guys in this band, all four of them having completely different tastes in music, and get them together and see what the outcome was. Right. And you know, that, that, that holds, that tests through their entire career. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but you know, to me, I, I don't, this is a weird moment where I, this is a band I love and I don't quite remember exactly when I first heard them. I'm not sure why I blank on that, but they were crazy times back then in Iowa city. So I'm, I, who, who the hell knows? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I remember that out here was one of the first I, I bought. 
And, you know, in eight, it, going back and thinking about it being from 87, whether I heard it in 89 or just talking about it now in 2018, like this band was so fresh in 87. If you listen to that and kind of try to put it in context, I mean, you know, they were dubbed alternative metal from the earliest days and that might as well right. just be the best way to describe them because they really were. I mean, they, they always had this metal thing, but it was always put through the ringer in such a different way than any other metal band. And the influencers were always so much more eclectic and both modern and older uh, than most metal bands. You know what I mean? It just, they just, it, it's hard to describe. It wasn't, I'll bet the record collections of these guys were, was, was quite. I would love to see those collections. Yeah. It, it was, I bet you it was quite the span, right? Yeah. yeah, it is. I mean, like the metal of some sort sort of underpins everything throughout their career. It do, I don't know necessarily that it defines them, but it definitely is sort of the chassis. But yeah, I mean, but it's really interesting for a band in 1987 um, with, you know, all these aspirations and all these different ideas to, um, to cotton themselves to metal so shamelessly. Metal was a, you know, metal was, um, you know, pejorative for a long time, especially in, in, in the kind of circles in which Mind Over 4 might have found themselves running. Right. I'm going to offer that it doesn't always work on out here. Like this is, this is an album that I love very, very much. That's maybe not like every track I love. I don't really care for no antidote. I don't care for hold on. I think they're right. okay. It's not a perfect album. No. And they also go outside of metal. We're talking, we're talking it up with the metal thing. But then if you look at like the other with the other, that's like funky, almost pre-patent faith no more. And uh, we'll find more of that. Yeah, we will find more of that. It's just got this hup to hup to kind of military cadence. Uh, it's got very interesting. There's a mention of David Bowie in it. Um, right. It, it seems to be a, about a platonic male female relationship. And one of those people died in, in a car accident. That's what I read into it. And it's just so we're already getting way outside of metal, not only with the music, but with kind of the subject matter. And then, then the song called Sun with two ends. And this is interesting because there was an amplifier manufacturer, of course, called Sun and yes. something O'Malley and Anderson made quite famous. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really. But this is a song and I don't know if it's about the amps. I don't know why they added the extra N, but it, I can never decide if I like this one or not. How do you feel about Sun? Uh, pretty ambivalent too, actually. Yeah. It's very different. It, it's interesting. It's, is, it's funky. Is it, it borders on reggae, but not quite that annoying, right? No, no, no. It doesn't. Yeah, not quite there. But does it border? Y yes. Okay. <laughs> It's, it's, it's not among my favorite mind number four songs. Okay, so. fair enough. So out here, we love it. It's just not their best. I want to talk about Fullerton for a second, especially because on this album, he's really into roles on the higher tune toms, right? Right. Are these roto toms we hear on this album? Uh, maybe. Um, but like he could have just had a really big kit with like, you know, six and eight inch toms too. Okay. Because he's playing these a lot. And, I, you know, it's kind of the era of roto toms, I suppose. It was. Yeah, so I, I I miss that era, honestly. Well, you, I, I had a pair of Roto Toms at one point. I was going to say, I believe I believe you can bring that like, back. <laughs> yeah, and um, and in fact, I like, actually ended up tuning them too tightly one time, and the the rim itself broke. Wow. Yeah, that's that's hard. Too too, too metal for Roto Toms, man. Fullerton would be proud. <laughs> I would hope so. All right, so moving into their second full-length album, um, self-titled Mind Over Four. Uh, this is where the, the core unit, um, the unit that would um, play on the next uh, three records after this of Spike uh, Xavier, um, Mark Fullerton, Mike Jensen, and Rich Castillo 
would all come together. As much as Mark Fullerton was a crucial addition to the band, I, I would argue that Rich Castillo is too, mm-hmm. um, not only for his divergent influences, um, which just through interviews and, and not through inference, um, I've learned um, were contrary to some of the other sensibilities of the guys in the band. Um, but it, it just, it makes for this, um, this really complex uh, gathering of sounds and influences. But two, like, you know, out here, as Jeff mentioned, we love it. But it's branching out in a bunch of different directions. They always branched out in a bunch of different directions. I mean, eclecticism was at the core of the Mind Over Four aesthetic. But from for this album and the, the two that follow it, they do it in, in, in much more um, cohesive and measured ways, maybe more sensible ways. But this is the album where, for me, that, that like really, really essential mind over four sound comes into focus. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, not to sort of put too tight of a definition into a band that just really kind of always... Yeah, uh, that, that constantly escapes definition. Yeah, constantly escape definition. But uh, I, I think here they solidify and metalize considerably. Yeah, I, I agree. It's dirtier. It's huskier. I mean, even the hair is longer and darker. Like you can tell you can see <laughs> right. where they're going just by looking at the picture. Not, not to mention, you know, listening to the album. So uh, it's like when um, when you looked at the pictures of Dream Theater on Awake, and there were no more frilly sleeves. Yeah, like, <laughs> sure. You knew, right. you knew things. Right. You knew things were taking a turn. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's a really good point. And if you look at the pictures on out here, they look like any old what I used to call college rock band. You know, they just they don't look like anything but college kids. Camper uh, Van Camper Van Beethoven trying to look cool. Yeah, they look like Camper Van Beethoven exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so yeah, so we get this self titled album. I think it's I think the self titled works here. Sometimes bands self titled, I cannot figure out for the life of me why they make that bold move. But here it works. Because this is it. This is my number four. It's an album full of highlights too, man. They've arrived. It is. It was really hard to pick snippets on this one, uh, which is why I gave Hunter the choice uh, of, of doing most of them. It was easier than halfway down, but not by much. <laughs> we'll talk about that album. Yeah. So we're going to start off listening to uh, the opening track from Mind Over Four. This is called Social Stature. To me, I've always thought of this as a sort of a great outtake from Ultra Mega OK or something. Well, Soundgarden like figured heavily into my research for this podcast. Yeah. I like, I kept, it was weird. It was like, I kept hearing Soundgarden and then I kept hearing this sort of weird orange County take on like almost kind of techie metal. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, but um, anyway, no, I, I, Soundgarden's an obvious influence on these guys, but yeah, I, I'm with you. It's like, it's like a really, really dialed in metalized version of ultra mega. Okay. And I want to let listeners know that when we pick snippets, sometimes obviously they're, you know, in the middle of a song or, you know, kind of near the end, this is how the album starts. Okay. With, with the acapella spike. So let's get into social stature. She walked in the room and proceeded to crawl on the Oh! 
So I, I love Spike's kind of sinewy, untamed, wailing voice. And I think that's a hallmark of what he does. Sometimes yes. I think he's a little too wild and out there for people. I embrace it. I love that just kind of untamed thing he does. I've actually heard someone uh, proffer that as an argument as to why, they, um, why, why success escaped them. It's because Spike might be a little too out there for mainstream ears. Well, you know, like we talked about in the Decroitzen episode, I think there was a similar thing going on with Dan Kavinsky. Yeah, with Dan Kavinsky, yeah. You know, in our world, these guys are amazing, and this is exactly why we want to give them money, right? I got to tell you, though, man, like for me in this song, this is like Mike Jensen's moment. Like mm, mm. the chorus is basically wordless. So Mike, Mike yeah. Jensen is basically singing the chorus on his guitar. With those octave chords and those harmonics, it's just really powerful guitar playing. Yeah, great, great point, great point. Uh, I, I want to skip to the next snippet right away. There's just so much good stuff on this album to listen to, and it was, it's really exciting to kind of talk about these with you kind of before we are recording tonight. Like we were talking about like what we're going to put on, right. uh, you know, use as snippets. There's just so much. I mean, leaving off a lot of good stuff too, like Vernal Equinox a song that goes back to 85 and uh, here we are in 89 and they, they brought that one back and, and bulked it up a little bit. Well, we're going to listen to a song called Messiah. I, this thing has such an odd cadence, really trippy passages. And, you know, Rich Castillo, the new guy doing this interesting kind of percussive neck, neck tapping on the bass. The, the bass it does. Prominent. It has an odd gate about it. Yeah. There's a, the bass is prominent at one point doing some very strange stuff. So I think we should uh, check out Messiah and talk about it when we get back. bordering on tech metal right there they are absolutely and i think that comes into their music and then on the next album a little more obviously I, I really hadn't thought about this until now but like the interplay between the bass and the guitar there reminds me of the relationship that like peter moses and tony bono had and in into another really like independent of each other but also totally complementary. 
You keep um, bringing up into another. Do you want to do a show on them sometime? <laughs> do I? I think you probably, do. Pro- prob- I probably do want to show. Them. I'm okay with that as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, well, that's that's kind of what I was getting at. Is like, yeah, there's this sort of um, like early Soundgarden, uh, amorphous uh, alternative metal thing going on, but like they were always on the cusp of of something trickier and more intricate and techier. Well, yeah, I mean, unless, you, really, you really hear it in that, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, sort of contrary to that, there's this really short song in the album called Hero, which is like this potent, energetic, but loving song about the fallen Minutemen guitarist D. Yeah. Boone, uh, which, you know, is always rumored that he was killed by sort of government agents because he was just too much of a meddler, kind of that John Lennon conspiracy right. theory thing. And then we have, we have so much on this album. We, we can't play it all for you. This is the last snippet that we're going to play for you. This one's called The Black Orgasm. Shows another side of this album. As Jeff said, there are literally too many highlights. I, in, in some ways, I, yeah, Halfway Down is my favorite Mind Over 4 record. But after going back and revisiting this album, in some ways, this is almost like the tightest, most cohesive Mind Over 4 record. I, I, I'm not, and I'm not saying it's my favorite one. And, and obviously like we're going to get into a lot more good stuff going on, but like this, this album is just kind of wrapped up and just fit for consumption. Yeah. And there's another song called uh, mile between the molecule that it, 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 it pained me not to feature, but I was just going to bring that one up. Yeah. Yep, but we can only play so much. And um, we, in a, a fit of despair chose, black orgasm it's a first world problem my friend it it really is (laughs) without further ado the black orgasm Helicopter swoops in and pulls your body from the wreckage. <laughs> what a lyric. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, that's really good. 
So that's the self-titled. It's uh, it came do, out. Of do the- you think COC liked uh, Mind Over Four? Mm-hmm. I for I some know. reason, man, I heard some uh, some blind like when that track kicked off. Oh, I can hear that now. Yeah, if you're talking about Blind Era, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. It's funny because you mentioned that they were touted and ran with a lot of bands like that. And, uh, and that's that's the other thing that just I'm stumped why they're just not remembered today. It's almost like the the, the, the big sort of more way more popular musicians and bands that loved them back then kind of swept them under the rug or something like, <laughs> like they just never mentioned her anymore. Or, yeah, it's weird. I, I don't know. You know, I've never heard COC talk about them. But speaking of that kind of stuff. I like looking at their thanks lists and it, it kind of helps us see who they were running with and who they were inspired by. And it really shows this kind of misfit band finding a home among other misfits really. Sure. Uh, and so with the self-titled, they listed Dag Nasty, Junkyard, Bad Brain. I mean, Dag Nasty would like actually play on their next album. Yeah. Junkyard too. Bad Brains, Victims Family, Metallica, Death Angel, Firehose, L7, TSOL, Jane's Addiction, Fugazi. So they were like, I mean, yeah. they were sort of like St. Vitus. Remember how St. Vitus was oh, sure, yeah. more in the SST punk car- hardcore crowd? Uh, kind of this weird misfit metal band that was embraced by people outside of metal. And mostly because like, there was no infrastructure to support any of these bands. You know, they were all yeah. underground. Yeah. And like, yeah, sure, there were divisions between punk and metal. But by this point, it was like, you know, we're all doing something brave. We're all just trying to make art. Like we need to support each other, and they all ended up touring with each other. Yeah. Um. And I, I, my, my dad it was funny. My dad always like he always leveled that criticism at, at music, like at at radio programming later, because he was saying in the '60s, you know, you would hear like you know Delta Blues, you would hear psychedelic rock, you would hear free jazz, like all on the same station. And I, I feel like that kind of filters through to this time that we're talking about, um, where all, yeah. all these bands that were on the fringe of everything all sort of banded together and played shows together and supported each other. Great, great points. Beautiful thing and kind of a lost thing in some ways. For sure. Jerry Ginn was a wise man. And it's also, that also kind of brings up a little sidebar here, but like I, I kind of hate the, or despise the notion of deep tracks. Like why can't a song just be a song for its own sake (laughs) played for people because it's good and it's interesting uh, and it's not the big hit. So what, what, you know, what makes a big hit? I think there are plenty of big hits hidden in deep tracks, right? Sure. It, it all depends. There's a lot of timing involved. So yeah, I mean, a lot of that's just, you know, smoke and mirrors as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. The Goddess came out the next year in 1990. And this is the one where you started to see big full page ads and you started to like mm-hmm. hear about them and college radio started playing them. And suddenly mind over four, the Goddess, the Goddess, the Goddess. It was just sort of everywhere. I suspect this is where I first heard them. It's where I first heard them. I was doing college radio. I was doing a metal show at college radio at University of Iowa, KRUI. And I was doing a Saturday night show and I was, it was pretty popular. So I was getting a lot of sort of material thrown at me. And I think this came along with the promos. And I, and I remember looking at it and with kind of quizzically. I'm, I'm actually now sort of live remembering how I first heard them. So uh, <laughs> bear with me. But yeah, that was, I think that was it. And, um, and I, I also think 12 Days of Wind was sort of being touted as a single, and that, which is not a song that's representative of this band at all. I don't think it's not. I, I do. I do like the song quite a bit though. I love 12 days of wind, but it's a weird little three minute sort of diversion rather than what I, I guess what I consider core or true mind over four. I'm pretty sure they opened the record with core mind over four. 
Let's get to that, man. Yeah, no. Yeah, uh, to me, th- this song is a perfect specimen. This yeah. is the first, my number four song I heard, and I just remember being sucked into a, a, a different world the first time I heard it. Let's listen to it. I have a couple things I really want to note about that one when we get back. This is the opening to The Goddess from 1990. This is Prayer for the Dying. You know, I'm not one normally to draw lines in the sand, but if you don't know this band and that song doesn't make you want to go out and buy this album, you should probably just stop listening. Nah, I completely agree. That's quintessential mind over four. Man, but it, it like you just hear this confidence. You hear a band that is like fully on its own now. And we're going to talk about this song for a while. There's a lot here. And, uh, you know... I think Spike is great on this. That that whole breathless yelping rant that he does—it's just oh, that tears in God's eyes part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's like rushing into it, like he just has so much to say, but has to right. get there at a certain point. And and I, I if I'm obje- objective and I'm like sort of like looking at it or listening to it the way others might, I can see some people thinking that's totally annoying. But for me, and understanding what he's about and what the band is about, that that he's just total artistry at that point like it's just an outpouring of expression it's a total outpouring and he's and he's panicked and he's rushed and this is kind of interesting too uh i am going to note we're we're finally going to get the blog section of radicalresearch.org up uh, we promise and i know we're still back in the whole uh fried egg era and we're going other places then folks (laughs) we will we'll we'll have some solo fold stuff up there we'll have some mind over four up there one thing i'm going to do is put the q a that i did with him from 1993 on the site once we launch this episode because i want people to read that it's not the most illuminating interview because i was a very green interviewer at that point but um, there's some really interesting stuff in there one of the things i wanted to note 
And this kind of relates to prayer for the dying. And what we just heard is that he told me that he was really rushed doing the vocals of this entire album. Like he would be called on at all hours, like at unpredictable times. And he didn't like that, but I like what it did for his delivery because he, right. he, he brings out that panic side of him, right? And that comes out just so clear in this album, more, more so than any other. So I think he thrives in that panic space. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's perfect for what he, he does anyway, the, the foundation of what he does. And th- that song and The Goddess, which follows, the title track follows No Prayer for the Dying. I'm sorry, Prayer for the Dying. Again, they segue real quick into it. There's no, there's no breath. You're just, you know, you're just... <laughs> left kind of like uh without oxygen for a while and and they go into the goddess which i think is another great song we're not going to play it simply because we want you to discover it yourself if you don't know it but those two songs remind me of if fate's warning in the no exit era had like moved to la and started running with some of these people because oh man that's an awesome point it, but it's true, right? I mean, this yeah, is this is, is how I it's, never thought about that, man. Damn. Yeah, the yeah. from the production, which is kind of just booming, echoey, really produced, but heavy. They're kind of coalescing into this much heavier, brighter prog metal space for a while. Um, and I think he has some elements of Ray Alder in terms of his tone. Yeah. Oh, I do too. This is my favorite album by the band. I know that you're you're a halfway down guy, uh, and I think you like the self titled second and you put the goddess at three i i like this but, like, the, but the margins between those are fairly thin oh sure same here man same here yeah. i mean this one though explodes with the kinetic energy that i've always thought as a mind over four trait this this kinetic delivery production sharp and clean i like that i know i know what you said about fullerton fullerton and the drums and the sound of his drums but i like the kind of overproduced quality of this album for some reason. I, I don't mind it a bit. No, and I think it totally fits the the music on the album actually. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's there's really not much to dislike here. Uh, we already we talked a little bit about Twelve Days of Wind. This would have been a hit single if they ever had one, but but they didn't. And it features uh, Dave Roach and Brian Baker of Junkyard. And Brian Baker, of course, is from Dag Nasty. How would you describe this song? I think of it as this kind of smart sleaze rock, Guns N' Roses-y kind of thing. Man, I didn't, never heard it like that, actually. Yeah? Uh, I always heard a, like a kind of melancholy underbelly to this song. Yeah, I mean, it, it, like the pedigree is there for the sleaze rock thing. But I, I don't know. Like it, it, it never resonated with me like that. Okay. Anyway, it's, it's, you should be able to find it fairly easily on YouTube and maybe check it out for yourselves. And, and, and discuss among yourselves the divergent uh, opinions of your hosts. <laughs> well, yeah, we I, 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 I do. I do genuinely like the song, though. And I think yeah. in a perfect world, yeah, it could have been a breakthrough for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's another point in the album where they kind of segue super quick, I, I, not even quickly. They don't even bother to give you, you know, a, a breath. They go from this song called uh, Gemini into Ice Water Steam. We're going to play a little bit of Gemini. I know both Hunter and I really admire this song. This is probably their most techie moment. It is. No, it's, yeah, just, yeah, one of their most tricky geometric moments ever.
I would like to make some smart comment about how this is tech metal grafted onto Soundgarden or whatever, but, but it really isn't. <laughs> it's, re it's really just like Mind Over Four playing really kind of weirdly technical metal, right? Yeah, I think I, and I always I hear a little bit of metal church in there. Like if, if on the yeah. Blessing of the Skies album, if, if they were going to go a little more techie, a little right. colder, uh, a little more clinical. Yeah, that's what you'd get. But um, it's wonderful. It, but I mean, yeah, but I mean, just yeah, just the the directness of the playing, just the sharpness of the playing. Yeah. And, and it should probably be said that Jeff and I have a less dogmatic relationship with the term tech metal than a lot of people do. Um, I, I think for us, it's as much an atmosphere as it is a codified sound. Sure. Uh, so you, you and I tend to hear tech metal in ways that maybe some other people don't. It's not all about Watchtower and Spiral Architect. Right. But, but yeah, but I still think listening but, to Gemini, you can, you can draw the parallel. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great album. Uh, again, pretty short, 10 songs. Autumn's here. Eases up on the gas pedal just a little bit really kind of colorful and textured and sort of unhurried, some tranquil acoustic. Probably the last time you'll hear that on this podcast. <laughs> well, maybe except for the next song, maybe. Yeah, all right. Yeah, and then you get, well, you get Hell's Bravest song, which is a real yes. snarling kind of thing. And we're going to end with a little bit of the, uh, the final moments of the album called Airplanes. And uh, this one definitely has some dark sort of brooding elements to it, but it's also, it also eases up a little bit on the intensity yeah, they do poignant and plaintive about as well as they do hyperkinetic. Yeah, I think you and I, at least for this episode, we're favoring the hyperkinetic stuff because I think that's where our minds go first. But right. there is a lot of that more plaintive stuff throughout their catalog that's just, just as good as you know the, the more kinetic Totally. Stuff. Yeah. Well, let's listen to Airplanes and we'll come back and talk about it.
Yeah. Yeah, oh, that end is so beautiful. Yeah, it goes on just for a little bit, and it ends uh, ends basically that way. And that's the goddess. Uh, interesting little bit of trivia. Did you know they covered Queen's Ogre Battle? I did not. Yeah, they did that fantastic song uh, from early Queen on a Caroline sampler. And I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that was this is around the goddess era because... It was on Caroline, right? It was on Caroline. It was also on Massive Sound. It was a sort of a co-creation of Caroline and Massive Sound. And Massive Sound was apparently the label started by Pat Dubar from... I believe he's in a hardcore band called Youth of Today. Mm-hmm. And he later went on to a uh, band called Mindfunk, whose name alone I just hate to utter. But there you have it. He, he, Pat Dubar was absolutely in Mindfunk. I actually bought the first record when it came out. I did too. I, because, was, yeah. I was 12. I was older. <laughs> I should have really known better. Uh, but they started life as Mindfuck. And then, of course, they had to change it. Right. Uh, so that alone, I was like, oh, that's, that's kind it's of... It's a very 90s name. I, you know, I, I haven't heard that album in probably in 20 years. Maybe I'll, if I'm bored one day. You think that's on Spotify? Probably. I, yeah. I, I'm going to guess. But, you know, um, the, the thing about Pat Dubar is that he really championed Mind Over 4, and he was, he was dead set on getting them a better deal after the self-titled, and he did. So, you know, kudos to him, right? Because yes. without the goddess, I don't think we would have had a halfway down. Now, before we get to halfway down, I want to look at the cover art so far. Let's start with out here. No reason to go back to Desperate Expression because it's just so obscure anyway. What, what, about, the, what about the cover artwork of, of these guys? I, I kind of tend to think of them in the metal church area. Uh, n- not a lot of great covers, actually. And they're housing amazing music. Yes. Am I right? Um, I actually, I really like the cover for um, for The Goddess. Um, okay. That works. I'm not exactly okay. sure what to make of it, but yeah. I, like the, I love the white background. I love the centered color contrast. And I'm I kind of fond of the, um, the cover for Out Here, too. It's okay. I, I think the ideas for both of those are real good. Um, I, I'm not sure I like the rendering, but okay, you know, uh, it's just it's just cover art. But I think we I think we put a premium on cover art when it's when it's awesome. We do. Yeah, out here is pretty cool because you look at that cover and you you know this this guy kind of reaching toward a blank space and in a very sort of blank horizon. Like you don't really know what that is. That doesn't look metal, for one. No which fits the band's thing. You get into the, the self-title that's just, you know. Well, let's, yeah, the, the less said about that, the better. Yeah. It's just, it, basically it, nothing. Yeah, they, they, they were like, mind over four. Let's put a four there. Let's put the album, let's put the band name on it. And hey, let's beautiful. On. Let's do yeah, it. Great, let's go. And then, uh, you know, Goddess. Goddess is a, a cool attempt at collage art. For me, it doesn't work that well. I think it's kind of gaudy, actually. Yeah. Interesting thing, at, when I talked to Spike for my fanzine, which is the interview I'm going to post on our blog uh, for people that want to know more about him and this band and how much Spike says bitchin', but he's an LA guy. so Really? That's pretty awesome. He said bitchin' quite a bit, yeah. <laughs> you can't hold it against him because he, he grew up in LA. So, um, uh, <laughs> did, that, did that ruin something for you? It didn't, but I mean, I, I'm like vaguely disillusioned right now. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, hey, you know what, man? If Spike heard me talk, he'd probably be like, yeah, what a hayseed. Yeah, yeah. I'm disillusioned. Yeah. And I, I, I thought guys from Georgia sounded smarter than that. <laughs> yeah. so, fair enough, man. There's room for all of us in this world. 
Okay, so so the goddess cover has this girl, the photograph of a girl's mouth. She's got lipstick on, and she's got three bullets coming out of her mouth. Shortly after I interviewed Spike, he and I kind of kept in touch. You know, you corresponded like you used to, writing letters and whatnot, because we just kind of got along pretty famously. We were both Melvins and Voivod fans, so it really was a thing. And I remember him telling me how the girl on that cover, this is several years later, but apparently the girl that was photographed for the cover like a week later, as I, as I remember, died in a car wreck. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and he was just, when he, when he was telling me about it, I believe this was a phone call as well. He was, he was about crying. So, so that's something I always think about when I look at the cover, unfortunately, I think. But, uh, well, maybe that's why the cover has a different sort of resonance with me than it does with you. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I maybe no I just want to turn away. I don't like to look at it. It's a it's a strange sure. thing to have experienced. Is is Spike telling me about this and his kind of really you know horrible uh, experience with it and his memory of it? So uh, anyway, and then we get into halfway down. And the, the reason I wanted to talk about the cover art now is because the album artwork shows the band with all the long dark hair, the usual mind over four look. But when I was doing my fanzine. I received a cassette of this album, which, like I said, has has them all looking with, you know, has, has them all with the long black hair and all that. The promo picture that was sent with that was completely different. They had short hair. They all had short hair, except for, I think, Rich was holding Rich on. Castillo definitely did not have short hair. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm pretty sure Fullerton had, like, a very like stylish mullet. Fullerton, Fullerton was never like the long hair guy in the band, but right. Spike and Mike, I think the focal Spike point. had like spiky hair, right? Well, Spike and Mike were the focal point of this band. And yeah, Spike came I, out. I, mean, I, I think I remember, I mean, I'm pretty sure I know the picture that you're talking about. Sure. Yeah. They're sitting on like a curb. Exactly. And it's all kind of profile pictures and they're looking in the distance. Uh, no, not that one. They're kind of looking at the camera. It's, it's probably from the same session, but anyway, Spike okay, yeah. had spiky white hair and spiky white hair, yeah. was totally butched and had Bitching as hell, man. the military cut. And it was weird because I'm like, Oh no, wait a minute. I'm looking at the record. I'm listening to the record. It sounds like good old mind over four with, you know, some differences, which we'll talk about in a second. And yet I'm looking at this new picture and they all, they look like a hardcore band. I was like, what is going on? So it was interesting. It was a drastic shift in image. And that's how they looked when I saw them in July of, or I think it was late June of uh, 93. Yeah. And it, but it, you know, if you think about it now in hindsight, that change reflected the changing attitudes of rock and metal itself in the mid nineties. And everyone cut their hair. It was certainly that the first indicator of that drastic musical change that would come with them on the following album after halfway down. But let's get into halfway down. You like this album. Just a bit. <laughs> I love this, it too. This, this album actually like kind of play this, this album sort of helped bridge our friendship early on because I remember without any solicitation, I sent you my top 30 of the nineties list. Mm. It's when you and I had first begun to correspond and I was like, you know what? I didn't ever bother sending this into maniac. So I might as well send it to you now. I actually like, I can't believe I remember this. But I remember that it was number 12 on my 90s list, this album. Okay. This album is deeply, deeply important to me. It's not only like my favorite minor four record. It's just one of my favorite records ever. And this album hit me like a ton of bricks. If you've been listening to this program for a while, you will probably know that I am rather obsessed with the year 1993. <laughs> this album like embodies everything that I love about that year. 
just the, the wild spirit, the fearlessness. But um, the, the, Jeff used the word kinetic to describe my number four, four earlier. To me, this is my number four at its most kinetic. I love how dry the production is. It's um, very different than Goddess. It's almost polar opposite. It is. It's very unvarnished, and it, it really just kind of um, lays everything bare. But th- their playing is just so savage and just so full of energy. I, they, they just sound like they're at the end of their wits, but, but like also um, incongruously totally in control of their, their muse at the same time. A- anyway, I'm starting to speak inarticulately. About no, no, no. I, I, and I haven't thought about it quite this way from this um, angle before, but you kind of presage why Empty Hands, the final album, sounds like it does. Because they sort of did reach a wall. They really were kind of like just shaking it all out and, and, and just giving it everything they had one final time. There are so many ideas on this record. Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's... Yeah. I mean, I, you know, like when I, I can't tell you how many times I've listened to this album. I mean, like truly, I, I know people say that sort of thing all the time, and it's usually hyperbolic. I, I literally have less, lost count. Yeah. But going back to this, I was just amazed at how many ideas these four guys could come up with and actually stuff into one record. And, and, and saying that, there are more songs on it than the last two, than the previous yeah, two. 13. Yeah, there are, there's 13 on out here, but the songs are quite short. These songs are a bit longer on average. Um, they really kind of did start bulking it up in both the song length and the album length itself. The album starts with Halfway Down, which actually is a sampled part of that Desperate Expression song that we kind of bagged on much earlier. Um, <laughs> They only give us 40 seconds of it, thankfully. It's also, the tape is run backwards. And I think, I presume there's some newer spike vocals on that as well. And then no, they, no, that, that, there has to be. Yeah, yeah, then they get right into Charged, which is like this beastly nugget of aggression. That one little line at the end, that nameless, the baby dies. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Yeah, nameless, the baby dies is really good. I'm sure that's a newer addition. And Charged is pretty straightforward aggression. We get Honor. You know, and it's been three years. Do you hear a discernible difference between Mind Over Four from the Goddess era to now in, in 1993 with Halfway Down? Yeah, I do. I mean, it's like it's more energized and it's also a bit darker. I was thinking about Honor. I, I, and like, and I, I, hear, I hear a desperation in their playing that I've never heard before. Hmm. Um, it, it's almost like they know that they're sort of at the end of their rope and they're just grasping for every possible note i've I've never heard fullerton more inspired yeah um, oh, he's amazing it, all over the most thing. intricate and inspired performance for sure yep but i mean all of them they're just firing on every last cylinder it's just kaleidoscopic i literally i'm i'm turning into a like a bumbling mess just trying <laughs> to describe this album because it's so personal to me i it's hard for me to talk about it in objective terms anymore um, well, what we thought we'd do, I mean, I, yeah, my yeah, personal yeah. opinion on this album is, um, you know, I, I don't quite have the connection to it that you do, but I love it as a Mind Over 4 fan. It's one of their top three. That's with all respect to out here. But to me, this album always worked on a bell-shaped curve, like in terms of where the strongest material is. Like, I right. think that the middle, by the time you get to the middle, you're like, oh my God, these guys are laying it all out. I'm not sure if they have anything more in the tank. Uh, after this, but they give you the best 
some of the best mind over four moments and songs in the middle of this album. And we picked three snippets from this album that are all right in the middle and they all follow each other on the album. The first one is my name is nothing. The, the next one is Jack the throne. And the third one is conscious of a nation. Um, we're going to play all three in a row, all three snippets in a row. We haven't done that before, but I think it will speak to sort of what we're talking about with I agree. the kind of climax of the album. Do you, do you think that same thing of the album in terms of like where the, the real climax is here? I, I, I do, but um, I feel like the, like all the songs leading up to this are almost nearly as strong. The end of the album's very interesting. We'll, get, we'll, get, we'll it, get there. Because yeah, even after these snippets are two of my favorite ones, uh, Barriers and Passages and Cycle of Experiencing People. I mean, those are probably two of my favorites on this one as well. But here we go. This is the nice meaty middle of the album. Uh, three songs here. Refer to your show notes if uh, you want to know a little more detail about them. We're going to start with My Name is Nothing.
this just shows you what we're talking about with the delivery and the ideas and the excitement and the kinetic energy of, of mind over four just coalescing in the middle of this album. And like I mentioned barriers and passages, <laughs> which is a great song. I mentioned cycle of experiencing yes, faith. I, th- I faith is great. Great. Some great spike there, some gnarled kind of spitting, yelping stuff there. Unknown peers. Another great. Absolutely. Moment. Love that song. But the, the best part of that song for me is another spike delivery, which is uh, with the speed of God's clock. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, and then you get then and now, which is um, spike told me in that interview I've been talking about that. It's the first song he and Mike ever wrote better than anything from the desperate expression era. So I like then And now it's got that one kind of like piano break thing in it. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad. And then they, and they put that on halfway down. I mean, like this is apparently a really old song and, and it works here. So I think more than the other albums we've been talking about, they're they're kind of like casting back to their very very beginnings in, in a weird way, you know, with the with the, the very first intro. I think and- some of the um, the Jack the Throne lyrics like compete with uh, with Cedric in terms of from Mars Volta in terms of obtuseness. Oh yeah, yep, yep. Uh, uh, and, and man, and like Conscience of a Nation has always been this song that tied Mind Over Four back to Voivod for me. Just, it's mostly like Mike Jensen's guitar playing. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were fans. They were fans. Oh, yeah, for sure. But, like, I hear the DNA in that song more than almost any other minor okay. song. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah I, like, I can't, like, listening to those three songs in succession just sent me into, like, a whirling dervish, man. <laughs> I, Dude, I, mean, and I understand you had a rough day at work so uh, not, a, not a rough day a rough six weeks right and so today today is the end of that six today is the day that the fog has cleared and i, I think the shit's hitting me harder than it would have otherwise it's a beautiful thing about I'm music grateful man. for that yeah no good wonderful i'm, I'm glad uh, radical research can bro- provide that for you <laughs> Not that you need this. No, we're, I mean, we're, you can just go listen to a full we're album without all this chatter, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's check out who they were running with at this point. Uh, the Miracle of the Thanks List. Dag Nasty comes up again. Apparently pretty tight with those guys. Uh, Megadeth, Season Risk, which weirdly <laughs> enough is not the first time Season Risk has come up in this podcast, but I hope it'll be the last. <laughs> Soundgarden, Halford and Fight, pretty cool. Yeah. Skid Row. And then the, the, the other two bands on the thanks list, to me, almost crystallize exactly what this band is all about. And that's Coup de Gras from Minneapolis <laughs> and Last Crack from Madison, Wisconsin. I mean, God. this Good. is where, this I is finally remember, where Mind Over 4 fits. Like my only memory of Coup de Gras, there was, I think it was called, Jesus, man. Um, it, was a, it was a video compilation. And I want to say it was called Metal Meltdown. And it had Anacrusis and um soul asylum and who else was on it um oh oh uh coffin break a completely worthless band yeah my 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 band played with coup de gras i always thought they were okay somewhat average but somewhat they were okay they They had a neat little midwest spin whatever the hell that is but i i kind of know what that feel is i don't know if i can describe it but i'm a midwest boy and my band went up to play a showcase for red decibel records, which is what the label was for that band. And for, um, I guess rap scallion and I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting the others fat Tuesday. And they loved us. They loved our demo. And we went up there and played the worst show we'd ever played opening up for coup de gras. Um, <laughs> and it, it didn't get any kind of deal. Um, so, so now I'm frustrated and have a podcast and I, I pick on people like mine over four. <laughs> 
you, and that what you're supposed to do? You've done, you've done okay. So, okay, the end of Halfway Down, these are the two songs that make me think that maybe this is not my favorite Mind Over 4. I like elements of both, um, but we have Funny Pocket and we have Coffee. I don't, I don't mind Funny Pocket the way you do. I don't care for Spike on a lot of it. He's, yeah. he's just getting a little bit... He, he, he's not keeping himself in check in the right way. I, I don't know Actually. how else to describe it. And I think musically it wanders too. So, so point counterpoint, what do you got? Yeah. Like, um, he does sound a bit casual on it. Coffee, coffee. I like, I, this one's growing on me, by the way. Coffee is like, growing on me. You, know how you oh. and I talk about third eye on, on Anima. Yeah. And how we like, it always kind of seems like, I mean, like it's a song and it's kind of serious, but it kind of feels like a divergence. It feels like a tacked on track. It does. Well, coffee feels like a tacked on track for me too. So I don't really take it in the context of the album. Fair enough. Um, and and I, I guess I don't hold it against the album. It's also growing on me. That one funny pocket is just to me, like spike tries too many sort of textural and melodic ideas that fail. Yeah. Uh, Rich Castillo is pretty inspired on coffee. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. I'll, I'll say. Well, halfway down, fantastic. Questionable ending, but we love it all the same, right? Yes. Did I, did I make myself clear? <laughs> you, you, do, you, do you like this album? Yeah. I, I, I would like to think so. I, I think you do. Then we get to Empty Hands. This is now 1995. Am I right? Uh, yeah, it's two 95, years, man. Two years they, after. They, are, you know, it's funny, like, you don't think that two years could make such a difference, but I, I mean, there was like a, a seismic shift in, in every, in like culturally and everything happening in music between 1993 and 1995. Well, I think even if you look at like obscure, but cool thrash or death bands from the early nineties by 95, some of them were really making questionable moves themselves. You know, mind over four wasn't the only one trying to kind of, figure out what the hell 1995 yeah, think about like forbidden in 95 sure yeah i mean there's there's a million examples we won't list them but you know it so so in that way it's pretty true to the era that it comes out of uh, here's here's the thing empty hands if you haven't already guessed and if you're still listening and thank you for that one of the reasons i speculate for the drastic musical shift is that things weren't really looking good for the band in terms of making this into a career. I think they've been trying so hard, touring so much. And while they had, you know, some critical success and some cult success, it just wasn't happening. And like, it was 1994 when this album started to come together, you know, various alt rock and industrial and punk and other avenues were getting more attention than metal or hard rock. And I think they felt empowered to just get some things out of their system that were always there but they'd always kind of tempered with, you know, some really great metal or some really great progressive ideas or whatever the hell we've, we've already been featuring. And they just went overboard with it. Oh. No, okay. I, like, I, I literally am kind of speechless at my despondency over this album. No, no, <laughs> I, I experienced a lot of disappointment in 1995 and 1996. Cause I remember like 95 was a pretty good year for me, but 90 just this this time as the the 90s sort of like 
turned over and we went from the early nineties to the mid nineties, stretching in the late nineties, like need to, I remember like brutal, brutal truths need to control is one of my favorite albums of all time. I remember hearing kill Trent suicide for the first time. It was like just an incredible disappointment. Mm-hmm. Um, Samuel's ceremony of opposites. One of my favorite albums hearing passage for the first time, just crushing. Yeah. Um, I, I love elegy now. Totally love elegy. Um, but at the time, it was a disappointment for me coming off of Tales from the Thousand Lakes. Um, so to hear mine over four go from halfway down to this, <laughs> I mean, and the, the title itself almost seemed knowing. You know, it was like we're we're out of we're out of ideas, and we're clutching at straws. And here's what we have to offer you, which is nothing. And this is true. Well, well, close to nothing. I, I'll I'll probably give this album a little more credit than you, but not much, man. I I very much dislike it. There's some fun stuff in the packaging of the album though. I have to say like this is almost a better album to like look at than to listen to. Um, first of all, let's, let's, let's get down to brass tacks. Spike and Mike play bass because Rich Castillo had left. They credit a guy on the back cover. This is kind of funny. Um, tackle box is his name. He plays dog whistle. He's listed as a fourth member. <laughs> so that's just, that's just some nonsense. There's a picture inside of Jason Everman when he was in I, I'm, obs- I'm kind of obsessed with Jason. Jason. Everett. Well, he w- yeah, he was in the military in this picture, and everybody knows he was a military guy. Uh, he was infamous for being in Nirvana and Soundgarden, but not really playing on their records. <laughs> but he, but, yeah, but he was also in old. And he was in old during the low flux tube era. I just love that that the guy was in Soundgarden and old. Yeah, and Nirvana and old. Yeah, that was, and, and Nirvana. Yes. Yeah. One degree of separation between old and Kurt Cobain. I love that. Um, the back cover had this quote. It said, check out any and all victims' family records. So these guys almost just didn't care about their thing. They were just like, fuck it. Victims' family is awesome, and you should check them out. Um, then there's a recommended reading list, including Diet for New America, a book that I highly recommend and really literally changed my life. And then a couple on Native Americans and some other interesting stuff. So that's cool. And then this is interesting. Somewhere in the liner notes, it says this record is a secret. So I think they kind of knew, I've never read much about their thoughts on this album, but I think they kind of knew that this was quite a diversion. So this album sounds like a band trying to get out of a deal to me. Well, that, yeah, that could be, it it could be uh, a contract killer. Absolutely. Why don't we listen to what I really feel is the worst track on the album? This is probably the worst song we've ever played on Radical Research. This is a song called Retarded. Yeah, I hope it's the worst song we ever play on Radical Research. This, I, I hope so. This is a song called Retarded, and um, it'll speak for itself. It's almost impossible to play the guitar.
Okay, you should know two things. I tried to make that snippet as short as possible, and it was way too long. <laughs> the, the other thing is, Hunter and I are both fans of Soundgarden. Uh, I think you probably are more into Alice in Chains than I am, but I, I definitely like them. I'm probably way more into Pearl Jam than you are, and probably no, way more into Pearl Jam than most people would even. Pearl Jam than I am. I don't think you're way more into Pearl Jam than I yeah, am. Yeah, well, but right, but I have like 37 live CDs. Okay, well, I guess quantifiably, you're way more in Pearl Jam than I am. No, no, but I don't even want, we don't need to quantify our, our appreciation for we, the Seattle. We, we both love Pearl Jam. Yeah, we yeah. both get what happened in Seattle and, and don't take it as some kind of strike against metal or whatever people like, yeah. like level against it. We, we enjoy it for what it is. I've always been a fan of some of those things. Of course, Melvin's, you know, to me, they're a, a Seattle band that moved early, but they're, we both love Skin Yard. They're part of that milieu. Skin Yard, great, great call. Anyway, Retarded is Mind Over 4 trying to do that and doing it terrible. It just sounds like really, really bad Mother Love Bone, and that's a band I it don't It sounds know. like really bad Sap to me. Okay, Sap, yeah. Like, that's, if, you, I, like, if you like figured out a way to make Sap suck, that's retarded. That's a good one. I, I always think of Mother Love Bone's Apple and like the, the the really horrible track they didn't put on it. And I'm not a big Love Mother Love Bone fan, even though I love Pearl Jam. Like, I'm not a I'm not a, just don't care for that stuff. I is it an Andy Wood thing? Yeah, yeah, I respect him, but I don't like his voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah fair enough. We've spent way too much time on Retarded already, so let's move on. There are two songs on this that I kind of like. The, the Rise is the second song and it's kind of about as traditional mind over four as the album would offer would you would you agree with that or yeah that's fair enough yeah but, but you don't still, want to say much about still it still a bit watered down <laughs> it is it is paralyzed which is the final snippet of the show um we're gonna play that that's this is pretty good i mean this is if they're gonna stretch out and do something different i i like that it cops paul's boutique era vibes a little bit and I have a weird affection for this song, but I think even this gets dull after a little bit. So we're going to play a little bit of Paralyzed to hear just kind of how far out they went on this one. I hear cake. You know the band Cake? Yeah, I've only heard the name. I'm not even sure I've heard them. So I'll, the, I'll the distance. They have a lot of hit songs, I guess. The, like one of their main hits is the distance. Okay. Yeah. Distance are kind of like disaffected, ironic, you know, detached sort of rock music. Eh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I hear that in in this. I have more to say about the album, but I don't want to say it. I just think it's a waste of time. Uh, you know, and not not to you know, we love this band, but there's Obviously. no reason to bother looking at the rest of the album. It just runs out of gas. I, you know, 
I mean, there's a song later called Chemical Portrait that I think like, is this a demo that was pressed too early onto an album? Like it just doesn't sound finished. And man, the final song Colony, that's my final bullet to the brain. It's just like bad career suicide, terrible song. And the thing is, is like, it, if you haven't noticed yet, and I'm speaking to our listeners, like Jeff and I love evolution, even like really, really radical, maybe even disastrous evolution, but neither one of us can sign on to this. Well, I think we have to sign on to an album that we truly think is great. I mean, right. we think Angel Rat is great, but right. That's but I mean, you fact. and I, I think you and I, in some instances, would even prefer disaster over lateral movement. Yeah, um, yeah, lateral right. moves are only interesting to a point, and um, right. but in this case, it just Sword divergences. This, but this just drags the band's legacy down just a hair, doesn't it? I think that's that's why I cling to like to my bitterness. It's because it's not just a, a it's not just a radical shift in style. I mean it it really does kind of tarnish their legacy. Maybe, but you know what? I, I can throw in Goddess and the self-titled and out here. Well, and so can I, down. because I like don't even own Empty Hands anymore. Yeah. And I mean, like, Mind Over 4 at its best is one of my favorite bands. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I, I worship them, but, it, you know, it's still, it's, it's a blemish on their, uh, on their otherwise fairly spotless work. I agree. And I, I, think, I think the story of Mind Over 4 is actually just a little bit sad beyond just empty hands. If you do a Google search on the band now, like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, it's like they were never important. It's like they were hardly even there. Uh, and, they, and they were so on the cusp of being important and being there. That's what I mean. And there's a paucity of Mind Over 4 material out there. I mean, beyond the basic facts. In our land, in radical research land, they've always been there. They've always been interesting and integral. And this is why we did this episode. And we hope that you liked all the fantastic stuff, <laughs> all the incredible, incredible stuff that they do have to offer or did have to offer. Next time, guys, we are going to diverge from our usual path, and we are going to be looking at a series of binaries that revolve around the productions of Rick Rubin, where bands were and where Rick Rubin took them. It is a study in aesthetics and an overview of an exceptional artist in his own right. And maybe he doesn't play an instrument, but he is certainly instrumental in the work of the artists that we will study in our next episode. Thank you for joining us as always, and we hope that you will join us next time.
He walked in the bathroom and proceeded to piss on the rim. <laughs> Thankfully, it all went in.